Over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the evidences for God's existence. And these have been uh, basically general arguments from creation to say that God exists, uh, that there must be a God, a being who pre-existed our universe and made everything in it. Today we're going to transition uh, to talk from Scripture about what this God is and what He is like. Um, so His essence and His attributes. That's going to be the next several weeks. And uh, it's always, this is a difficult subject to approach because you don't know which order to go in, uh, which attributes do you talk about first, and how do you kind of logic through those, because, I don't know, there's, there's just different ways of, uh, of arranging these, and some of them tend to overlap a bit. So you'll notice uh, over the next several weeks, I, my plan is to allow some time for discussion, um, so we can just kind of, it'll be like link sausage, whenever we're done, we'll just whack it off when we're out of time and, and pick up there next time. Um, so that's going to be the next several weeks. To begin, let's start with reading uh, what I consider to be kind of the theme verse for our study of God, and that is Jeremiah 9, verse 24. Uh, Jeremiah 9, verse 24, which says, Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That is our goal over these next several weeks, is to better know and understand our God. And we begin perhaps with a discouraging concept uh, to our goal of understanding and knowing God, and that is uh, the incomprehensibility of God. God is incomprehensible, meaning we can never fully grasp God. He is infinite and we are finite. He is independent. We are His creation. Thus, we cannot know God exhaustively. We don't have the capacity to fully understand God. That God is incomprehensible does not mean that we can't know anything about God, but rather that our knowledge will always and necessarily be limited. I want to read a couple of quotes from A.W. Tozer, his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He writes, to admit that there is one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason or submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. A little later in the book he says, This God we have made, and because we have made him, we can understand him. Because we have created him, he can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, nor astonish us, nor transcend us. This is a common problem in Christianity. We tend to reduce God down to our level so that we can understand him. Which basically means when we come to aspects of God that we have a difficult time comprehending, we simply we simplify God and try to think that he is just like one of us, but he isn't. And we need to be okay with a certain level of wonder and curiosity about God. We're never going to fully figure out uh, everything there is to know about God. And so when you come to those uh, issues, and there's many we're going to see as we go throughout our study of God, we're going to come to issues that make you ask questions. If God is this, then why this? And how does this aspect of God's character work with this other aspect that seems to be an opposite? Um, we're going to do our best to study Scripture and see what we can know for sure, but there will be certain points at which we have to appeal to incomprehensibility and just say, we can't figure God out. And so we're at the limit. We are as far as we can go, 
And we need to have humility enough to say, uh, we can't go any farther. You know, we can't, uh, Moses couldn't look at the glory of God. He could see the afterglow. Uh, you know that story where he's held in the cleft of the rock because God said, you can't look at me and live. And so for us to, uh, sometimes we get frustrated because we can't gaze into the full glory of God and see everything there is there. Uh, but that is the reality we need to accept. Psalm 139 verse 1, a few texts on incomprehensibility. says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts afar off. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Okay, so, so far in the Psalm, David is saying, God knows everything about me. He knows me perfectly. He can see every action I take. He can read my thoughts. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Okay, so the knowledge, God knows us perfectly. We don't know God perfectly. Seems like a, a simple concept, uh, maybe an obvious one, but it is one worth considering. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And then Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? And then one final verse, Job 26.14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? These verses show us that not only can we never fully understand God, but it's also true we can never fully understand any single aspect of God. Uh, the psalmist said there, his greatness is unsearchable. His understanding is beyond measure. His knowledge is too high for us attain, to attain to. His riches, wisdom, and judgments and ways are all beyond our ability to understand fully. His power is beyond our understanding. And so while we may know something of God's love and God's power, God's wisdom, etc. We can't fully, we can't know these things exhaustively. And these texts are all saying, uh, they're all uh, um, attributing God's incomprehensibility not to our sinfulness, but to God's infinite greatness. It is because of the fact that we are finite human beings trying to understand an infinite God that we will never be able to fully achieve this. The only one who fully knows God is God. However, that doesn't mean we can't know anything about God. God has revealed certain things to us in Scripture, but our knowledge will always be limited by our finite capacity to understand Him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand the things freely given us by God. So there are things that are revealed to us about God. We're able to understand those by the Holy Spirit's illumination. But there's always a limit to our knowledge of God. Now at this point, I want to say a word about uh, the concept of anthropomorphic language. If that's a big, scary word, it's a simple concept. We're going to talk about it more when we come to uh, the doctrine of immutability in particular. 
There are places in Scripture where God uses human language to communicate something about himself. But it's not to be taken literally. Okay, so there are times when God uses language to speak of how he is acting. Uh, especially you'll find this in narrative and in poetry some. Where God reduces basically something that he is doing to our language. So that we can understand something, but it's not to be taken literally. Here's a good example. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Obviously, God does not have eyes. God is a spirit. He does not have literal physical eyeballs. And even if he did, uh, they're not running around throughout the earth. That, this is not to be taken literally. We read this, we understand it. it's a metaphor. Uh, the point is that God is omniscient and he is omnipresent. That is the point of that verse. He is everywhere and he sees everything. And the way that that is described in this verse is that God's eyes are running through the earth, uh, beholding everything that takes place. Okay, so that is a, an example of anthropomorphic language where God's actions are spoken of in a way that we can understand using human language, like he has eyes, he's seeing what's happening. Uh, it's communicating something to us, but we're not to take that literally. We're not to take that to an extreme um, to say, you know, when the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool, obviously God doesn't have feet and he's not propping them up on the earth. The point is that the earth is under his dominion, that he is the king of the universe. That's the point of the verse. And so we want to make sure that when we see these uh, examples of God being expressed in human language, uh, sometimes this is not to be taken to an extreme literal position. We need to ask, what is God trying to communicate about himself? Um, one important note here, as we look at theology proper, we need to form our doctrinal positions about God based on the clearest and most didactic passages of Scripture, rather than the narrative or poetic passages. Uh, this means we draw conclusions about God, I'm sorry, we don't draw conclusions about God from a story in which God appears to be acting in a certain way. Um, especially when other clear texts of the Bible say he doesn't do that. Again, this is going to come up a lot with immutability, because when we say God never changes, the first question that always comes up is, well, what does it mean? Uh, in this particular verse, there's one in uh, the flood narrative, uh, and then there's one where I can't think of off the top of my head, where it says God repented, that God changed his mind. Well, I thought God doesn't change. Uh, what's happening there? That is anthropomorphic language. We'll talk about it more when we get there. Uh, but that is basically describing something that God does in human terms that we can understand. But we're not to take that literally, because in fact, in one passage where it says God changed his mind, uh, I think it's the next chapter that says, uh, God is not a human that he should change his mind. <laughs> it literally says that in the very same context. So we need to understand that, that these sometimes the Bible uses human language to describe something. We're not to take it literally. R.C. Sproul, that little book on the back table says, Calvin said that, God in his graciousness and mercy condescends to lisp for our benefit. In other words, he addresses us on our terms and in our language, just as a parent may coo when talking to an infant. We call it baby talk. Nevertheless, something meaningful and intelligible is communicated. Calvin, if you read his writings, uh, John Calvin appealed to this concept all the time, where he would say God is speaking baby talk. Uh, he's, he's talking to us in a way that, in, uh, that finite human minds can understand something about God, but it's not, it's not to be taken precisely as though he's uh, really meaning, oh, I, I repented. Obviously, we know God doesn't repent. 
So the question is, what is the text saying when it uses that language? God is beyond our understanding, is the doctrine of incomprehensibility, yet he has communicated certain things to us about himself. And this leads to the goal of our study of God. What are we trying to do here? Don't be discouraged by the concept of the incomprehensibility of God, to think that we're just wasting our time uh, trying to understand a being that we'll never fully grasp. Even if we cannot know God fully, we must strive to know him truly. So there, while there may be times when we have to appeal to incomprehensibility throughout our study, there are some things that we can know about God. Just because we can't understand everything doesn't mean we have no certain knowledge of God. I can tell you that I have three brothers. That's true. Uh, you don't know their names. You don't know their ages. You know everything about them. But, but it is a true statement if I say, I have three brothers. Nothing wrong with uh, pinning those types of statements down. So just because we don't have exhaustive knowledge of God does not negate the fact that we can have certainty about those things revealed in Scripture about God. And that leads to our next point. We must seek to know God as he is described in Scripture. Your view of God is one of the most determinative aspects of your life. And many of us have inaccurate views of who God is and what he is like. We have certain ideas about God that come from our upbringing, our culture, our family, even our entertainment. And some of our thoughts of God may be accurate and some of them may not be. The challenge then for each one of us is to unlearn the false things and be taught from Scripture what God is truly like. Uh, another aspect of incomprehensibility is to say, God, our view of God is too small. I can say that for anyone in this room without fear of exaggeration. God is bigger and, and more glorious than any of us can conceive of. Colossians 1.9 says, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That should be the goal for each one of us throughout the rest of our lives, that we would continually increase in our knowledge and in our understanding of God. Don't be content with the things you already know. Keep searching and studying and seeking to know and understand God more fully. I want to read one more text <clears throat> before we jump into this study of God's attributes, and then I want to pray quickly, uh, and I think you'll see why as we read. Luke 10, 22. We studied this just a, a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Father, now we ask that you would give us a glimpse of yourself. We know that we cannot understand you fully. According to your word, we can't understand you at all without God, uh, you revealing yourself to us. We pray that you would tear down the idolatrous false notions we may have of you and replace them with the truth about who you are as you describe yourself to us in your word. I pray that you would reveal to our minds as we study your word what you are like, that we'd have a more accurate and full and truthful uh, understanding of the great God that we serve. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We begin our study of God's essence with the eternality of God. That's going to be the first attribute we talk about. Uh, this is kind of a basic one, uh, so we're not going to spend as much time on this maybe, but the, the point of eternality is that God has always existed and always will exist. God's existence, 
It goes infinitely in both directions. There was never a time when God did not exist. There will never be a time when God doesn't exist. God never came into being. There was never a time when God was not. We get this from several texts we could look at in the Bible, but just a few uh, to set this uh, up. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Okay, so whenever this, this subject of eternality comes up, uh, many theologians are quick to say something like God exists outside of time, that God is timeless. Uh, that is not what I mean by eternality. The most, I would say many theologians will say that time is a feature of creation, and prior to creation there was no time, and that God himself uh, does not have any succession of moments in his own being. He ex experiences everything in the past, in the present, and in the future, all as an eternal present is normally how it's constructed. That God, th there is, in other words, nothing in the past or future is any different than things in the present for God. He exists outside of time. Now, personally, I think that's going beyond what Scripture teaches. I don't see that in the Bible. And to me, anyway, it is logically incoherent. I don't even understand what it means to say God is outside of time. Um, that concept just doesn't make sense to me. Now, there's a lot of smart people that believe that. Um, for instance, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, he advocates for this position. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. And, I, and again, I don't see it in Scripture. I understand um, that God, God exists that God exists in a way that is above time, that transcends time, but not in such a way that it's distinctly removed from time. Okay, so an, an illustration that I use of this, and I hesitate to bring this up because it always leads to questions, uh, but I think most of you know, I used to be a clown. Uh, my family is a family of clowns. My mom still is a professional clown. And having been a clown, uh, I spent a lot of time walking in parades. That was a regular thing that we would do during the summer, different Fourth of July, Memorial Day, whatever. We were in parades sometimes. And uh, I would, well, anyway, let's skip to the point here. My brother was a stilt walker. Okay, so he was nine feet tall up on his stilts, and we would walk in parades a few times together. And uh, one of the frustrating things about parades is they're constantly stopping and starting. And if you've never been in a parade, maybe you've not noticed this, but a kid will run out to get candy and run in front of a bus, and so he slams on his brakes, and that backs everybody up. Everybody has to stop until everything you know, gets moving again. And the longer the parade, the more frustrating that is and the longer it takes everybody to get going. Um, so I noticed uh, one nice thing about having my brother next to me is whenever the parade was stopped, he could see above the floats because he was on stilts. And so he could see what was happening ahead of us uh, that nobody else had any idea. And so I would ask him, hey, what's going on up there? Uh, are we gonna be moving soon, whatever? Because I would be juggling. And if you're juggling in a parade, if the parade stops, you have to entertain everybody, you know, for a longer period of time, which is harder with juggling, because after a few minutes, you're kind of bored with it. So you got to come up with different stuff. So anyway, I would ask him, uh, how much longer till we're moving? And he could see above the floats, he could see all the way to the end of the parade sometimes to know <clears throat> what was happening and, and what was coming. So that is the way that I think of God's relationship to time, that he exists, he is present in time. So my brother was walking in the parade. Okay, he wasn't outside of it in some tower just watching it from a distance. No, he was in the parade, yet he could see the end from the beginning. He could see the whole thing. 
Uh, he, could, he was there from the beginning, he's going to be there in the end, and he can see it all at once. So he is above time in a sense, but not outside of it. I think of the timelessness of God, sort of, or I'm sorry, the, the eternality of God, sort of like his omnipresence. Okay, when we say that God is omnipresent, we don't mean God exists outside of space, but rather that he permeates all of space. And so if you apply that same logic to time, uh, we would say that God does not exist outside of time, but rather he permeates all of it. He exists all the way in every moment of the past, in the present, and in every moment of the future. Any questions on timelessness? I know that's a different view, um, but basically what I'm saying is that, to me, it does not make sense to say that there was ever, I don't even know how to say, that there's ever a time when there wasn't time. Um, I think time is a feature of existence. And so if God has always existed, he has always existed in some succession of moments. Now, I understand there wasn't always a sun. There wasn't always 24-hour days as we experienced them. But I do believe God uh, did things in the past, that he's doing things in the present, that he'll do things in the future. In other words, he experiences uh, succession of moments. God has done things in the past. He's doing things in the present. He will do things in the future. And so in that sense, he exists in some form of time. Uh, just a, a couple of verses to back this up, and then we can take questions if there are any. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Okay, so in the past, God did this. He overlooked the times of ignorance. Now he's commanding all people to repent, and in the future, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So there you see past, present, and future in God. Now I understand you could argue around that to say uh, that is just God interacting with us in our experience of time. I get that. But to me, again, it just doesn't make sense to say that God exists outside of any form of, of time. Um, now if there's objections, that's fine. I know a lot of people would disagree with me on this. Any objections or questions about eternality or time? Malachi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that they go to that whole thing that we spoke of moments ago in events. We always qualities about God that is hard to wrap your mind around. But at the same time, you know, I, because of that very reason, you know, I, I, I can also get the same the thought that, you know, maybe even classical uh, uh, concepts of Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let me just say something like that because I, maybe I should have addressed that more. Um, the reason I don't believe God exists outside of time is not because it's hard to understand or impossible to understand. That's not why. Okay, I believe all sorts of things about God that I, even just to think of God as always existing is kind of hard to understand. To think that God, as far in the back, he's never created, he's always been there. The concept of eternity, I don't even understand. Um, so there's a lot of things that I, I have to say, this is true, and I don't understand it. However, uh, for me to say that, I need something in Scripture that leads me to that conclusion. So what I see in the Bible, in other words, I don't see the concept of God existing outside of time in Scripture. I think there's one text that could be used to, to argue that, that I have a different view of, and that is uh, a thousand days, a thousand years as a day to God, right? It's, it's a paraphrase, but basically equating that our, our existence of time is not the same as God's, which I, I grant that. God's existed throughout all eternity. To me, that passage is saying, um, you know, we live a short life lifespan. God's always existed. So for us, what seems like a long time is not at all to God. And in context, I think that's the point of that verse, is that uh, don't feel like God is slow in doing something, slow in acting, because he has a much bigger perspective. He's existed throughout all of time. Um, so in other words, I, I have no problem saying I believe something that's hard to understand. A lot of things I believe about God that are hard to understand, but I don't see any, I don't see in scripture where we have to believe that. And so if it is to me, logically impossible to comprehend, and I don't see it taught in the Bible, then I'm, I'm not likely to buy into it. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's not that I, my argument is not, this is illogical. Therefore it's not true. The argument is, I think it's going beyond what the Bible says, if that makes sense. I, that doesn't mean it's wrong. I just don't think we can say from Scripture that God exists outside of time. Go ahead. Right. But yeah, so I mean, for the reasons you say, yeah, I, I think that uh, your thoughts have you know, some merit. Okay. All right. We're going to read one more text on this, um, on the eternality of God. <clears throat> so basically, speaking of eternality, if you want a basic statement of this, it's just that God has always existed and he will always exist. He has no beginning, he has no end. He is the uncaused cause, the one from whom everything else originates. Isaiah 40, verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so, I mean, there's so many texts we could look at in the Bible that, that say this, that God is everlasting. He's always existed. He permeates all of time. There was never a time God did not exist. Uh, we're going to move on now to the aseity of God, which is related to the eternality. I know this is not a normal word that you use, aseity. What in the world is that? Um, and at first I wasn't going to include this because it, I don't know, I don't like giving random theological jargon that uh, is unnecessary. But 
the more that I, I studied this concept, the more I've realized how important it is. If you read any book on the attributes of God, this is going to be in there, the aseity of God. For some reason, most Christians don't know about it. It's not something we talk about in church or whatever. But if you read even a little book like that one on, uh, on God's nature, you're going to find a section on God's aseity. And it is really at the heart of who he is and is a very important concept. So we are going to talk about it briefly. The word aseity <clears throat> basically means God is self-existent, that he is existence in and of himself. R.C. Sproul explains aseity this way, the ultimate difference between God and other beings lies in the fact that creatures are derived, contingent, and dependent. However, God is not dependent. He is the power of being in and of himself. He does not derive it from something else. Uh, this attribute is called God's aseity, from the Latin ase, meaning from oneself. Scripture tells us that in God we live and move and have our being. But nowhere are we told that God has his being in man. So the concept of aseity basically says that God has life in and of himself. God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. God does not need, needs nothing outside of himself to live or to be everything that he is. And so if you want two words to, to simplify the aseity of God, uh, I guess three words if you count the hyphenated. One is self-existent, and the other would be independent. Okay, so those would be two words that would help understand what aseity means. Self-existent, God ex has existence, life from himself. And then number two, he's independent. He does not need anything. He does not need us. Uh, there's nothing that is necessary for him to live outside of his, himself. Okay, John 5.26. <clears throat> Let's look at a few texts on the aseity of God. John 5.26, Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. God has life in and of himself. Now there's some Trinitarian questions there. What do you mean the, the Father granted the Son to have life? Does that mean he didn't always have life with it? We're not going to get to that right now. Uh, we'll talk about the Trinity, I don't know, whenever we get there, it'll be a while. And that's after the attributes of God. But uh, for our purposes today, just John 5.26 very clearly states that the Father has life in and of himself. Uh, Acts 17, verse 24. This is a, these verses, by the way, in Acts 17, are very important on the concept of God. If you want to know more about God and his nature and his attributes, Acts 17 is a really good place to camp out. Uh, the God who made, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There's a lot of uh, good theological content in those two verses. But notice, first of all, John 5.26, God has life in and of himself. And then Acts 17.25, uh, he does not need anything. He himself is uh, the source of everything that we need. He doesn't need anything from, from, from outside of himself. So God's aseity means God is self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-contained. He needs nothing. We need hours and hours of sleep in order to keep our eyes open. We need water and food to keep ourselves alive. 
We need shelters for, for protection. We need doctors for our health. We need teachers to teach us things we don't know. And I could go on and on. God needs nothing. Life, strength, protection, health, knowledge, all of it he has in and of himself. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. God depends on nothing else for existence, but rather he eternally existed without any external or prior cause. And this is where you see the relationship uh, of the eternality of God and the aseity of God. The fact that God has life within himself, in one sense, is the basis for God's eternality. Um, in other words, it's a, well, maybe the other way around. It's a logical conclusion. If God's always existed, he must have life within himself. Because if he had life uh, from something else, that means there was a cause that caused God to come into existence. If God's always existed, then that means life originates from him alone. R.C. Sproul said, There never could have been a time when nothing existed. Because if there ever was such a time, nothing could exist now. Those who teach that the universe came into being 14 billion years ago think in terms of self-creation, which is irrational, because nothing can create itself. The fact that there is something now means that there has always been a being. And this is sort of tying back in with what we've studied the last couple of weeks about God's existence. Uh, the fact that things exist now in our world today means that something must always have existed. And this is just a, a logical conclusion that it, it, if there was a time when nothing existed, how did anything come into existence? Uh, nothing can create itself, obviously. If you created yourself, that means you existed before you created yourself. It, it doesn't make sense. So the fact that there are things that exist in our world today means uh, that there must have been something that pre-existed all of it and that that being that pre-existed everything must have life in and of himself. Um, Exodus 3.13, famous passage where Moses uh, comes across the burning bush and God speaks to him out of the bush. Acts th uh, sorry, Exodus 3.13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The aseity of God is at the heart of who he is. Even in, his, in the name that he reveals himself to Moses by, you see the concept of God's aseity, that he has existence from himself. I'm going to read a, a bit of a larger quote here from Stephen Charnock that puts the two concepts of eternality and aseity together. And he does a good job of demonstrating here how God's self-existence relates to his uh, being the creator. So try to follow this. This is Old English. And uh, he's a very intelligent man, so it is a bit tricky to follow, but try your best here. It is necessary that he by whom all things are should be before all things and nothing before him. And if nothing be before him, he comes not from any other. And then he always was and without beginning. He is from himself, not that he once was not, but because he hath not his, his existence from another and therefore of necessity, he did exist from all eternity. Nothing can make itself or bring itself into being. Therefore, there must be some being which hath no cause, that depends upon no other, never was produced by any other, but was what he is from eternity and cannot be otherwise, and is not what he is by will, but nature necessarily existing and always existing, without any capacity 
or possibility ever not to be. There's a lot packed in there. Any questions about uh, the concept of aseity or anything that Stephen Charnock just said there? Anything unclear? Now, I, maybe this would be helpful to read a couple of times um, because I know it is, there's a lot packed in here. But basically he's saying uh, the fact that we have creation now means God must have preexisted everything. That's a, a logical conclusion. That there must be some being that existed prior to everything that ex exists now. And if he was the first thing to exist, if nothing caused God to exist, if he's always existed, then that means he must have life within himself. He must have existence within himself, not dependence on any other thing. Because if he was dependent on something else outside of himself, um, then that means there was something before God existed. Okay, so the concept of eternality and aseity are, are intertwined and they really have a lot to do with what we believe about God as creator. The fact that God's created our world depends upon these two doctrines of aseity and eternality. I know we've talked about a lot of uh, philosophical stuff this morning. Any questions on anything that we've discussed? Uh, we do have a couple of minutes for any questions or discussion. Well, either everything was clear or everybody's bored. One of the Malachi, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's difficult for me to imagine a being that has always existed. That's that is outside of our categories. Everything we see had a beginning and an end. Um, so to think that there was something that always existed is difficult to grasp. However, for me, it's harder to grasp uh, that everything came into existence from nothing, like you said. And and if you, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things to ask evolutionists who talk about the Big Bang theory and things. Um, first of all, what banged, right? The Big Bang Theory that created our universe. Well, they'll say dirt uh, somehow with certain gases, I think hydrogen and something else, 
caused the explosion that created our, our universe? Well, where did those come from? What caused, so you're saying dirt and these gases, these elements have always existed? And they don't have a good answer for that because ultimately saying that our, our world was created by a big bang, um, all it does is push back the question to where did the elements and where did the components of that explosion come from? To me, if I was an evolutionist, it would be easier for me to just believe that the earth and the universe as it is today always existed. That would be more reasonable to me to say than saying that these dirt and hydrogen gases always existed and then one day exploded. Um, but anyways... So, yes, it's difficult for us to believe that God's always existed, uh, that he extends infinitely in the past. We can't get our minds around that. But it's also logically impossible to say that there was a time when nothing existed and then all of a sudden things started to exist without any sort of cause, without any sort of, uh, you know, what caused this thing to, to suddenly exist? Well, it just suddenly existed. So both concepts are difficult to grasp our minds around. I think the first one uh, makes more sense and causes less problems for sure.